millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. In recent weeks, two separate documentaries have explored the 25-year-old murder of French woman Sophie Toscan Duplantier in West Cork. Mr. Duplantier's badly beaten body was found on the morning of the 23rd of December 1996 near her home in Tourmore, outside Skull, and nobody has ever been charged with her murder in this country. On Sky Crime, filmmaker Jim Sheridan has been front and centre with his production, Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie, while over on Netflix, uh, a three-part series entitled Murder in West Cork is now showing. Ian Bailey has been a major presence in both documentaries. He quickly became the chief suspect for investigating Gardaí in the weeks after the murder and was arrested twice in connection with it. He has never been charged and has always protested his innocence and claimed that the Gardaí engaged in a witch hunt to pin the crime on him. Despite that, in 2019, a court in Paris convicted him of murder in absentia and that followed an investigation and a trial that took place under an old French law that allows uh, French authorities to investigate and prosecute the murder of a French citizen that happens in another country. As I say, it was in absentia. Ian Bailey was not present. He did not cooperate with it. Neither did his uh, Irish-based legal team. His, his French-based legal team had some correspondence with it. But again, he was not represented in that court case at all. Following that, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. However, last October, the High Court in this country denied for the third time a French request for his extradition. And on this occasion, the state did not appeal that High Court ruling and therefore it would seem to be the end of the matter in terms of any attempts to bring Mr Bailey to Paris. Earlier this week, I travelled down to West Cork and met Ian Bailey to talk about how the renewed interest in the case has impacted on his life and whether he's any regrets about how he conducted himself over the years in relation to a horrible murder in West Cork and its fallout that has, for various reasons, dominated his life over the last two and a half decades. In, as we all know, there have been two documentaries out. They, I think it's fair to say they give differing perspectives on the story around the murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier and the manner in which you were dragged into the whole affair in terms of the investigation and the various fallout. Would I be accurate in suggesting that the, the individual documentaries give differing perspectives on perhaps your role in it, the Gardaí's role in it, how you were treated, that sort of thing. Well, first of all, I've only seen two episodes of what I call the Jim Doc, the Jim Sheridan documentary. And I saw those about three weeks ago when they were first released. And I watched them in the kitchen with uh, Fenella's um, son, Theo. She, she got the computer. She did something to do. Fenellis being Jules Thomas's daughter. Jules, youngest daughter. Jules has three daughters. And they came down and 
Theo watched it with me, and she had the computer, and she understands stuff, so she managed to make it work. So it was downloaded, I don't know. So I watched one and two, and it made me made me deeply, deeply sad. It made me deeply sad for a number of reasons. It made me sad for the victim, Madame Sophie Toscander-Plantier, God rest her soul. It made me very sad for Jules, seeing Jules, you know, there as a much younger person, and, and then myself as a much younger person. And I, it brought, I didn't cry actively, but it definitely brought, watered my eyes. And I thought, I'm not going to watch anymore. Now, at a point in the future, I may watch the, I might watch all in like a, the box set, as it were. And so that's really all I can say about the, the gym doc. But the Netflix doc, which I knew in advance was going to be, I predicted it would be, I was hoping I would be wrong, but I wasn't, a piece of self-serving, demonizing propaganda, which was going to paint me in a very dark light and really show, try to say I was the murderer. I haven't watched that. I don't intend to watch it, but a number of sequences in it have been drawn to my attention by different people, lawyers and other people. And I've seen certain clips and I'm, I'm getting together a sequence of clips which would involve me in it and certain images and particular images to do with a, a mock-up of a, a, a coat, a black coat in a bucket which they are used, which uh, appears to indicate that they're, what they're trying to suggest is that I was wearing a black coat at the time of the murder. Well, I had nothing to do with the murder. I did have a long black coat and it was a winter black coat and it was a lovely black coat. I'd had it for years. It was my grandfather's old railway um, from a, it was like about 40 years old. I was quite attached to it. And the suggestion was that I had worn that and got blood onto it. And the reason it was in a bucket, which it never was, was because to get rid of the traces of the blood. So the funny thing about the black coat is that it sort of, so there's this suggestion that I had a black coat and I was soaking it in a bucket of water on the Monday the 23rd and Tuesday the 24th Christmas Eve. And yet when you look at the Christmas Day swim in which there is there are two different fil films, Florence Newman shot one. This is Christmas Day in 1996, Day two days after um, Sophie Duplantier's body was yeah. found. I can be seen to be wearing my black coat and a, and a lovely black fedora hat, which I had, which was which was subsequently taken away uh, on the first arrest on the 10th of February 1997 by the guards. I never had the coat returned. There was never any explanation of what happened to it. And yet, when you look at the file of the, the list of items that they took from me, which I got back after they'd seized them, the first item on there is a long black coat. And I think that was referenced in what you call the Jim Doc, uh, the Jim Sheridan documentary. Um, and at the same time, Ian, the family of um, the deceased Mr. Duplantier withdrew their permission from Jim Sheridan's documentary on the basis that they claimed that it portrayed you as a victim. Um, I think that's what they were claiming. I think the thing about the Jim Doc was, and Jim always said to me he was going to be um, very objective. I think that, yeah, I think that was the reason that they, right at the last minute, and it, it caused complications. Now, 
I can tell you this because I know the background. Sky were anticipating, Jim and Sky were anticipating that that would happen as it did right at the last minute. So to cover that, and you'd know this from being a newspaper man, you sometimes do two headlines. Like, you know, you just cover and they're ready to go depending on which way it goes. The Queen is dead, the Queen has recovered. Or Boris Johnson and Brexit famously in the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> oh, God. Let's not talk about that. Um, so they did two edits, and it cost a lot of money, a part of the budget, so that when the objection did come in, it didn't thwart their project going out. Yeah. No, the evidence for and against the whole issue around the Guardian, it all has been gone over to greater or less extents in the respective documentaries, and I don't really want to get into that. There are two aspects that arose, though, and it's just more reflection on them in terms of from your perspective. And one of those is the libel trial that you took that was heard in Cork Circuit Court mm-hmm. in 2003, I think it was. 2003, I think. And, it was and went into 2004. 2004 yeah. yeah. Now, one aspect to that, and this really, I think, came true in both documentaries, is that you went in there obviously looking to restore your reputation on the basis that you felt your, your reputation had been slandered mm-hmm. and libeled mm-hmm. by the newspapers, mm-hmm. yet it would seem that you came out of there irrespective of the fact that two of the seven decisions, I think, went in your favour. Two out of eight, I think. Two out of eight, yeah. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think there's general agreement that irrespective of the result that was handed down, you came out of it overall with your reputation pretty battered as a result of the evidence that was heard. Now, yeah. 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 Do you... And we, we can, we'll get later to why some of that evidence subsequently showed to be in, in a totally different light, but purely on the basis of... And also it should be pointed out that following that trial, it reignited interests in France that ultimately led to the setting up of an association and the reinvestigation from their point that led all the way to this murder trial in absentia in 2019. What I'm wondering, Ian, is reflecting from here and perhaps even seeing the documentaries... Do you have any regrets about having taken that action? No, no, I don't, because one, I don't do retrospective regrets because there is no point in doing that. It was something I was advised to do by the the lawyer at the time, Con Murphy, who's passed away. We had um, Jim Duggan was the the junior counsel on my behalf. He was up against Paul Gallagher. Um, I didn't know it. That was an ambush. That I was bushwhacked. I'd walked into, in effect, a trap. And what I didn't know was the, the newspapers I was suing were given the Garda files from by the guards prior to discovery. Uh, no, but the answer, to answer your question, no, I didn't. And I appealed, I appealed the ones I lost, and subsequently there was a settlement on the matter which amounted, I, I got no, no money from it, but my legal, if there was some form of settlement after three, a three-day appeal hearing in Cork City, uh, where it, the matter was settled to the satisfaction of my lawyers, I think the deal was that they got their costs. I got nothing out of it, and that was the end. And that cleared the way then for me to to go up to UCC uh, as a as a mature student of law. And I spent you know five years up there. And you, I think you got a master's in law. I finished up. I did a three year BCL honors, and I did well on that. And then I did a postgraduate LLB, and then. I did under Shanko Cummins, the head of law now at uh, UL, wonderful man. Um, I did a master's uh, degree and I came away with a first class distinction in my master's thesis, which was on police accountability in Ireland. 
The reason I bring it up is because it would strike me that had that trial, that libel trial, not taken place, I just wonder whether things would have advanced the way they did, the murder trial, the extradition saga, all of which I'm no doubt brought you and your family great stress. And I just wonder if the libel trial hadn't occurred, would your life have been very no, different over the last 20 odd years? Yeah, I don't do retrospective hindsight regrets or anything because I did what I did. Well, let me put another way to you. Would the young Ian Bailey rethink again about taking such a No, no, I would, have, I, I would have gone, I would have done it anyway. And don't forget the main witness that was used against Coming me that, yeah. was a lady called Maria Farrell who was forced to give false evidence. She was delivered to the court by Angada Shirkana. And as she came to leave the court, she was had put in her hand by a, a, a senior detective, I won't mention his name, a 20-pound note. I think it was pounds then. Well, no, I, I, any exchange, any, if there was any such thing, it would be entirely in the base expenses or whatever, and that kind yeah. of thing. And I, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't uh, read into that. No, and I'm no, sure that's no, not, no. there was nothing improper about any of it anyway, as, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, no, you mentioned Maria Farrell, and yeah. that's the second element I just wanted to touch on. And it strikes me as this, uh, Ian, there was a lot of what people, certainly the Gardaí viewed as circumstantial evidence and what you might call the court of public opinion had various opinions on it. But the one thing that strikes me as being crucial to any type of a case that could ever have been directed towards you was Maria Farrell's evidence. Mm -hmm. And without that, I wonder, would you even have been arrested in the first place? I don't, well, I think they definitely used that as the reason for the first arrest and subsequently a second arrest because they, the second arrest was achieved on the basis that I had been somehow menacing or threatening Maria Farrell. Now, Maria Farrell, bless her, she's another victim of this. There are many victims. There's Sophie Tusker and the Plantier. There's myself, there's Jules, our families, and the community, the greater community of West Court, which is still tainted and stained by this act of what I always said, was um, a, 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 an act by Angala Shirkana to um, pervert the course of justice. Well, no, you brought that civil action in fairness. The Gardaí were, it was determined in that that they hadn't done that. But anyway, that's and, and neither that here nor there. And that matter, by the way, just to bring it up to date, and I'm sure your readers will know this, that I wrote three letters very recently because of new evidence that had come to my attention. Um, I wrote to uh, Antishok, I wrote to the Minister for Justice and, and Drew Harris, the Commissioner of Angalashia Khanna, as a clean pair of hands, asking him to reinvestigate the whole case. And I understand, my understanding is, that there will be a complete, comprehensive cold case review. Uh, but just briefly on, on Maria Farrell, as we know, she changed her yeah, evidence in 2005. In 2005, I had a phone call from Frank Bottomer, bless him, my solicitor in Cork City, and he said, Ian... Uh, I've had a phone call from Maria Farrell. She wants to come and talk to me, and she told him the truth. And the truth was that all the statements she had made implicating me from seeing me on being on the road uh, close by to the, the scene at Kilfoda Bridge and all the subsequent statements of harassment were, were false statements that she had been prompted to make by members of Angala Shirkana, and she retracted all of those. And yet, although she retracted them in 2005, Guess what happens in 2019 is that when I'm tried in France, those statements are read into the French case and that you were there as though they were never retracted. That, I have to say, um, on the base of my observation, was very unusual. As you say, 
they decided that the original statements she made were those that they were going to consider in evidence rather than the retracted statements. Yeah, yeah. Um, when were you last in touch with Maria Farrell? Oh, a long time ago. I know. Oh, actually, uh, no, right. So there were, when the gym doc was being filmed, they did some, what do they call, drama uh, reconstructions. And the the shop that she was running then is now Mizzen Computer Services. And they Mizzen Computer Services very kindly let them turn it back into a sort of mock clothes shop. And I was there observing the Ian Bailey double um, person, the actor who was acting my role. And a lady came around the corner from Ardner Manor and said, Hi, Ian. And she said, I thought I recognized her. But she said, you don't, you, don't, you don't recognize me, do you? And I said, well, just remind me. And it was Maria Farrell. And she was looking much younger, much different from the, you know, as I'd seen her. And yet it was her initial statements that yeah. landed you in a lot of trouble. You see, the thing is this, and I don't know if you were there for that civil action. It was, you know, it went on for 64 days and she took to the stand and she was asked by my counsel, Tom Creed, wonderful senior counsel, about why she had made these um, statements. And she said, she told a very interesting story, which I'd never heard before. And she said that one of the detectives, and this is all, this is all in the open, so uh, had told her that one, I was the murderer, and two, I was a very, very strange man who, apart from other things, did naked poetry readings under a full moon on Barley Cove Beach with 10 dancing lesbians dancing around me. I'd never heard that story before. It was a piece of fiction. But the funny thing was, the headlines in the newspapers the next day were Bailey does lesbian. When I got back to Skull that weekend, do you know what? Shall I tell you? Every one of the lads of Skull was saying to me, Ian, Ian, the next time you do one of your lesbian poetry readings, could you could you let me know so I could be there to take some photographs? It certainly was. I, I recall that it was highly unusual evidence. Uh, it, it would be said, though, Ian, as well, though, in terms of that civil action you took, um, there was a, a school of opinion that suggested the crucial witness there, this time in your favour as opposed to against you, was Maria Farrell. And it would certainly appear that... Uh, her evidence didn't ring wholly true with, with with the jury. Well, I don't know about the jury, but it certainly didn't. They, she was she got a really hostile. Uh, senior counsel Paul Higgins, Paul or Higgins, and Liam uh, O'Brainarn, who were representing the state and, and got paid substantial sums of money for three hundred fifty. As they're perfectly entitled, yeah, as they're perfectly entitled to, but it was taxpayers' money. Um, Paul O'Higgins was absolutely vicious to her. And she walked out of the, the she walked out of the proceedings at one point. She just had enough. She, well, I, I think to be fair now to any of the senior counsel involved, what was at issue was uh, she was requested to identify the individual she said was in the car with her when she originally right. claimed yeah, yeah. that she had seen you and she insisted that she wouldn't. And it was, that was the issue that led to was, her yes. walking out. Yeah, I think it was, yeah. But anyway, that was, that was Maria Farr, but she, there's no doubt she was central to an awful lot of the case. She was also central to your uh, civil action, well, which didn't succeed. She was a key witness for the, for the prosecution. But interestingly, as we're talking about this, only as a result of me appealing the first European arrest warrant decision, which went against me to the Supreme Court, we received out of the blue 
a 2001 critique by a man called Robert Sheehan on behalf of the DPP, James Hamilton, in which he'd got, which was then 2001, okay? I never had that document for the libel case. If I had, it would have been a completely different result. But Robert Sheehan went through all of the alleged evidence with absolute critical analysis, and he traduced it, rejected it, and um, we weren't allowed then. We thought we were going to introduce it into the civil proceedings, but the senior counsel for the state stood up and objected, and the judge ruled we couldn't introduce that evidence. Yeah, and again, d d down to legal rules in terms of statute of limitations, etc. Yeah, but yeah. That, 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 that's, that's the way it goes. Um, now, there's a lot of speculation that there will be some sort of a cold case <coughs> review. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? Well, I, I mean, I only heard about this yesterday through the media, actually. I had, I'd had a letter back from Drew Harris's office saying they were, uh, the, the, my three letters asking for the matter to be reinvestigated were receiving attention. And only yesterday, which was Tuesday, yesterday, there was a piece in The Independent apparently saying that there will now be a complete comprehensive cold case investigation. Now, that won't happen overnight. That's going to be a long, long... Would you cooperate with oh, it? I've already said in my letter to Drew Harris that both myself, my former partner, Miss Thomas, and uh, and Frank Bottomer would cooperate fully and, and in any way we could. Tell me as well, following the, the documentaries, um, you are... You're well known, if not a public figure. Have you detected both in terms of communication or in terms of interaction with people locally here in West Cork any uh, different attitude towards yourself? Well, all I've noticed is that I've received a huge amount of support from a large number of people that I don't know, never met, a lot of it through social media and also on the street, wherever I go, of support and sympathy. And I am really, really... That helps me a lot, actually. That keeps me the... It keeps me... Um, it keeps me buggering on, keeps me, gives me a de determination. And I'm hoping now with this new review, and it's interesting because John Kieran's another journalist who you would know of the Mirror and the Star. Uh, three weeks ago, he rang a, a, a retired member of the Cole Case Unit. And the retired member of the Cole Case Unit told John Kieran's, and there was a story in the Saturday Star of three weeks ago or so, that he'd completely comprehensively looked at the file and he came to three conclusions. One, I should have been eliminated from inquiries straight fairly early on. Two, there was no evidence against me as such. And three, I was targeted falsely and put into the frame. And in that respect, my particular case is very similar to what happened to very good innocent Irish people in England in the case of the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. And this is an example of what is known in, is, uh, academically in police as result-oriented investigation. You decide who you're going to go after before you look at the evidence and then you either falsify the evidence, do whatever you can to put them in the frame. That has been shown, as you said, in cases like that and other cases to unfortunately have been the nature of police work here, but yeah, in, in other countries as well. Has, yeah, yeah. yeah it, 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 it in America. It, 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 de de definitely. Yeah. But despite that, Ian, you look at um, the deceased woman, Mr. Duplantier's family, mm -hmm. and you I'm know very, I'm very uh, sympathetic to them. Uh, yeah, I know. You know, I know, and also. I but know. can I just ask you, in 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 relation to them, 
and I know it's your position, and and it certainly is 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 the case. Some people would suggest that they became convinced of your guilt on the basis of uh, how they looked at the case and how they were informed about the case early on. But it would also seem that twenty five years later, they and they and they've looked at this every which way, but they still seem to be convinced of the opinion of your guilt. Uh, how, how? Why do you think that is? Well, I, I know exactly why that was. So from day one, they were told it was me. And they, the language the guards used in the tape was like that English so-and-so. And so they were told that right from the word go. And they believed that. And I can understand them believing that. If you had that from a person in authority, have no doubt, we know who it was, and we will get him. You, you buy into the, you accept the false narrative from day one. And once you've accepted the false narrative and it gets imprinted in the mind, it becomes very, very difficult to... One, one thing about that, I absolutely accept what you're saying, but it would also be the case, I would suggest, that a lot of people, perhaps initially, might have had the false narrative and subsequently look at the issue and decide, well, hold on now. Yet it would seem, and they're only looking for whomever they they believe to have been guilty of the crime, it would seem that they have retained that 25 years later. Well, some some people have, certainly, but don't forget in the Robert Sheehan um, critique of 2001, which everybody should really read as the, the touchstone for this case, he actually makes the point that the guards went around, and we knew this was going on anyway before this came out, telling people, our neighbours, and people in Skull have no doubt we know who it is, and they were referring to me in very crude terms as a, an English uh, B ending with X, and it's him. And they tried to turn the whole community against me. And some people, and I can understand this. If I say, say, hypothetically, okay, say, um, somebody, you know, somebody comes to me, and I'm a journalist, and I'm making inquiries, and they say, I have no doubt, it's that fucking Kerry, fucking somebody, Mick Clifford, and I know it's definitely him. Once that false narrative is sown in the minds of people and they choose to believe it, and I can understand because if you were told that authoritatively, you might well believe it, it becomes almost impossible then to break out of that mindset. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Ian, as we know, as you know better than anyone, this has now been going on for 25 years. Um, Uh You're in your 60s. Yeah. Um, I presume and my circumstances, as and the whole world knows about this, have just changed. And my journey with Jules has come to an end, um, deeply saddening. And I, I now have to find somewhere else other than where I am, you know, living at the moment um, to find. And it's very difficult. So I'm, that's another thing that I'm having to deal with, as well as everything else that's going on. Do you attribute any of that to the fallout from everything? Well, no, I tell you, well, I think what it was, you see, I'm a media animal in a way because I was a journalist and I understood the business. Jules is quite a private artist and I think the toll over the years and particularly the last book that came out, I think the last book by a man called Nicholas Foster was the the final straw that broke the camel's back because he wrote to her about it. Uh, It was just too much and it's, I mean, it's almost been too much for both of us. and I only ask you this because it, it arose in the Jim Sheridan documentary. Um, do you think alcohol played a major role in your life or in your relationship? Well, certainly when I behaved very badly towards her, um, alcohol would have played a role, yeah. And, I mean, we both drank. Um, but um, latterly, I would have thought not. But, uh, no, I think it's more the media 
she she just found it very difficult to, to to handle it all the time. And would you hope to stay in West Cork if you move out from your oh, yeah. current? In my heart, I'd hope to live and stay and die in West Cork. Now, having said that, I'm looking around. It's very difficult. The COVID relocational demographic shift has caused a huge thing here. Property prices have doubled since the 15th of March last year. It's places that were available to rent as private rented are now being let out as Airbnb. You know, you could get 250 a week as a rental. You can now get 700, 100 a night for Airbnb. It's very difficult. Having said that, I'm, I'm, it's always been difficult here anyway because people would do winter lets and then from September to March. Now I have the possibility of a place coming up and somebody's indicated it possibly from September through to March. And if I can, if that comes to pass, then I'm having to, I'm at the moment I'm moving, while I'm talking to you, I should be actually moving things in the shed, boxing all my stuff, all my law books have gone, my entire collection of art, everything I've collected over my entire life is having to either go into boxes or, or be sold. And legally, the High Court rejected the last European arrest warrant application mm. from France, which followed the, the guilty verdict in the murder trial in abstention in 2019. The state subsequently decided not to appeal it, which presumably was of great relief to yourself. Well, the, thing, the funny thing about this is that I thought that having gone through all the battles I've been through, that I would have, obviously I was glad that it went to my, I didn't know for about an hour when he was reading out the judgment, which way he's going to go. I couldn't actually tell and I, people started giving me thumbs up across the courtroom and I thought, well, that's uh, thumbs up, yeah. And he went in my favour emphatically. I thought I might have had a sense of release or relief. But strangely, I didn't. And I'm wondering, with the benefit of hindsight, I think maybe Jules had made up her mind that she was going to stand by me um, throughout that whole proceeding. And once it was concluded, I think she she probably came to the conclusion that she'd had enough and she wanted the relationship to end and she wanted me to, you know, move on. And the other thing in relation to that is, as you're originally from the Manchester area, I don't know, do you have any close family left there? You well, you, you missed I, your I, mother's I, I, funeral. Yeah, because, yeah, then, would you feel, first of all, would you have any desire to visit any family there? And secondly, well, would you I'm, feel any way secure in doing so because... No, this no, thing, the point is, is, and people have said this, and this is, you know, I've been asked this a lot of times. One, I have a sister in, in, in Cornwall, London, and we're in regular touch. She came over for the, the civil action, Kay. And I have a niece and nephew. And we're in touch every now and again. Uh, I have no desire to go back to that decomposing nation. I left it in 1991. I didn't like what was going on. I loved the culture. But Leonard Cohen said this. He loved the culture, but he couldn't stand the scene. And um, if I was to, for instance, go to visit my sister in Cornwall, the moment I would arrive, even though the... UK now might be out of the EAW, European Arrest Warrant, procedure. There is still a bilateral extradition treaty between France and Britain. I would be arrested at point of entry and then I, I would have to fight extradition from the UK. So I, I'm I'm not, not for going. And at the same time, I know the French are sort of, I don't know. I mean, I, I, the French are very strange in a way. I'm actually slightly worried that the because the the son Pierre Louis, who I have the greatest sympathy for, has seems to have been issuing what seemed to me like veiled threats through the media. Now I know that the French, on a number of occasions, have or people in France have actually kidnapped people from outside of France and taken them back to France for trial. 
there are two, maybe three cases where that's occurred. And it's, it's, I'm not overly worried about it, but I am conscious of that. Yeah, and to be fair, to be, to be fair, what you describe as veiled threats, I think, and I, I, I saw some of the footage, could equally and was most likely intended as being uh, attempts to use the legal process entirely legitimately to get you over there, but quite obviously that has failed one way or the other, and anything beyond that is purely... And the other thing is this as well. Don't forget that this this case in, in Ireland is still open and ongoing. And this new review, and a number of strands of new evidence have come, apparently. I've, I've brought some new evidence to the attention of Drew Harris, and I think Jim Sheridan has also come across new evidence relating to Maria Farrell, and he's drawn that information to her. And my understanding of this is only through the media... There was a man who was, she saw on the streets of Skull on the 21st, Saturday, the 21st of December, 1996. Across the road, the, uh, Madame de Plantier came into her shop. She observed a man who she said initially was five foot eight, who looked like sallow skin wearing a beret, who then subsequently followed Madame de Plantier up Ard Manor to where she had a car parked. Now, relatively recently, and I only know this through Maeve Sheehan's piece in the Sunday Independent, apparently Maria Farrell has now uh, seen a photograph of somebody and identified that person, and it turns out that person that she's identified, unbeknown to her because she didn't know this, was an associate or worked for Daniel Toscan de Plantier. Yes, so that, 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 that's a recent story that has arisen. Whether, whether it has validity or not, I don't know yet. I met you earlier in Skull today and, you know, I, I, I think it's fair to say, and whether it's the correct word or not, it's the one I use as celebrity, but you certainly have a certain status. Uh, and I'm not saying you... No, no, can I just say on that yeah. point, I don't know if you remember the Kenneth Williams from the, the actor, British actor from the Carry On films, he used to have a phrase, infamy, 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 they've got it, infamy, a play on the word infamy. And I think that's what it what it is. Okay, and is there any part of you... That revels in that? No, not at all. But I can't do anything about that. I mean, I've been accused by different aspects of the media of, I can't do anything about this. I, don't forget the guards let my identity out from day one. I didn't let my identity out. They let it out. To the, and from that moment on, on the 11th or 10th or 11th of February 1997, nearly 25 years ago, my life and my life as a journalist were completely changed. I've lost, as a result of all of this, I lost my career as a journalist. I loved loved writing for papers, like you do. You know, it's it's something, and it, you know, it's good. You can help people. I've lost 25 years of reasonable, legitimate uh, expectation. And now at the end of this, I've lost my, my long-term partner, who I loved, loved, probably still do. Well, I do. And, and now I'm losing my home, and I've lost everything as a result of what was a dirty, rotten, stinking lie and a conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. And when you say infamy, Darren, it's, you, you, you put it very well, um, you would still say within that context, in your opinion, uh, the majority of people in the West Cork area would be able to see things through your eyes as they, as they happened? I don't know exactly that, but I know that I've had a huge amount of support from a huge number of people and actually very little negative. Occasion. I mean, I had this week I had a, oh, a, a nasty letter from an anonymous person like saying hand admit it admit it it's you and then last night i had a most wonderful letter from somebody bride bride bride, i don't know who she is which was completely the opposite 
And you told us about your circumstances and obviously somebody in, in, in your, at your station of life facing into that. Mm. Do, do you face into the future with any fear? Well, I did a prayer there a few weeks ago and the prayer was, be it God's will, that I am alleviated from any sense of fear, anxiety or apprehension and be it God's will that I am alleviated from any negative thoughts about anybody, anywhere, at any time, any place. And I repeated that prayer, I wrote it down, and it actually seems to have helped to alleviate the anxiety and apprehension that I was feeling. To that extent, would you describe yourself as being at peace? I'm, I think I'm as about at peace as I could be, given the um, situation I'm dealing with. And I, I did write a poem about this while I was being tried in Paris, um, as a result of meeting somebody who inspired me. Uh, and I, it was called, uh, I stay calm in the eye of the hurricane. And if I, if I detach myself from all of the swirling madness that's going on around, I think I'm at peace. Yeah, I am actually. I mean, that, that's quite amazing for me to be genuinely, at, you know, as, as at peace as I can be. And I, I'm grateful for that. I mean, that's, that's maybe something to do with angels and I don't know. Finally, it comes to all of us, but whenever your time does come, um, would you like to be well, either buried or cremated in know. West Cork? I don't know. Uh, what I would hope is that whenever it comes, whatever happens to me, my name has been cleared, so I don't have to come devil hunting from the afterworld. And would you like your remains to remain in West Cork? Well, there's an expression, isn't there, bass in Erin, death in Ireland. Well, um, I don't know. Do you know... Um, there's a line from that film, The Godfather, isn't it, where the man says he's, he's sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Ian Bailey, thanks very much for talking to us today. That's it for today, folks. Uh, a tragic case on so many fronts and one wonders whether there will ever be any kind of a definitive outcome to it. I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon, Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe to the Irish Examiner online. We'll see you soon. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.